Hello, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So this will be the next lecture for patrons, which I'll post first on Patreon. And this is Doorways in Time, The Great Archaeological Discoveries, number four, The Library of Ashurbanipal. So to understand why the discovery of this particular library was so momentous, we can start by looking in the Bible, specifically the book of Nahum, one of the minor prophets of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And if we look into chapter 3 of this book, it contains a series of prophecies addressed to a wicked city and warnings of its coming destruction. And it begins, quote, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? All your fortresses are like fig trees with their ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed your gates. So this is one of a handful of passages in the Hebrew Bible that speak of a city called Nineveh, which was very powerful, but in their view was morally corrupt and so doomed to destruction. And this city is used as a cautionary tale, sometimes directed at the Hebrews or Israelites themselves. And for example, the prophet Zephaniah predicts the destruction of Nineveh, which he names specifically as the capital of Assyria. And Zephaniah says, quote, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. But then after this passage, strangely, Zephaniah switches into speaking of this city in the present tense, as if the city was already ruined at the time when the prophet is speaking. And he says, quote, This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none beside me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. So there's all this imagery of ruination, and then particularly of animals, beasts and birds of different kinds, coming and somehow taking over the landscape. The city of Nineveh and the kingdom or empire that it ruled, which was called Assyria, looms very large in the world of the Hebrew prophets. And one can tell even from these handful of passages that Assyria was a major power, and in fact we know it was the superpower that eventually destroyed and overran the kingdom of Israel. So it was something 
for the Hebrews to be frightened of. But especially, they focus these feelings of fear, resentment, and judgment on the city of Nineveh, which they use then as a symbol of imperial hubris, of arrogance that is then brought low. And it happens that Nineveh is also the city that God dispatches the prophet Jonah to go and preach to and to warn of a coming judgment and destruction. But in this story in the book of Jonah, the destruction of Nineveh is forestalled when the king orders the people to fast and repent, both humans and animals. Again, this continuing association with animals. The city is mentioned again in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, where it's used as an example of a city that had been spared because it atoned for its sins. And Jesus himself is said to invoke Nineveh as a counterexample of a better, more penitent city than Jerusalem. But at the same time that we see this continuing invocation of Nineveh in the Bible, the real city itself remains totally mysterious. There are a few brief references to its existence in the works of Greek historians, but before about the year 1850, hardly anything was known about this city. There were a handful of inscriptions, most of them in an undeciphered script, and there were no material remains like buildings or artwork. And so it was really completely a blank as compared to, say, Egypt, where there were many surviving monuments and many inscriptions, and even the ancient writing system had been deciphered thanks to the Rosetta Stone, thus unlocking all kinds of imperial history in Egypt. But when it came to Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire that it ruled, people really had no idea how the city had risen to become the capital of a great empire, how it worked, how the people there lived or what they believed, or why it suddenly fell and was abandoned, as all of these texts consistently claimed. So this then should give some sense of the great significance of the discovery of a library that was unearthed from the buried ruins of Nineveh. And this discovery of the library of Ashurbanipal, as we now know it, was the uncovering of what had been the largest library in the world at its time, before the days of the Library of Alexandria, and the largest single discovery of ancient texts and documents that has ever been made. And this massive uncovering shed light very suddenly on the Assyrian Empire, which went from being a complete mystery to suddenly being the best documented empire of its age, the later Iron Age. And it throws light even beyond that on how all ancient Iron Age empires in Eurasia actually worked in general, whether you're talking about the Persians, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, because the Assyrians served as a blueprint for other empires as far as administrative rule, military organization, the Assyrians were pathbreakers. And so this entire age of ancient history suddenly came into view that had been completely unknown. So just to give a little brief outline to situate the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in the sort of broad sweep of the history of the ancient world. Nineveh was the last and biggest capital of the Assyrian Empire, 
And Assyria was for a few hundred years between about the 800s BC and the 600s BC. For a few centuries, it was an enormous superpower, which is known to have ruled over a very extensive realm, even from these brief references in the Bible and in Greek literature. The empire was based in upper Mesopotamia, the upper and more northern zones of the Tigris and Euphrates valleys. Mesopotamia had always been, for thousands of years, it had been a center of civilization and urban life. But upper Mesopotamia was a very different landscape from the lower regions, which were home to Sumer and Babylon. In this upper area that became Assyria, the rivers are smaller, they are less fertile, and hence there's comparatively less farming, gardening, or irrigation like you would find down in Babylon or the old cities of Sumer. The upper regions, though, have somewhat more rainfall, and hence it gives rise, rather than completely dry desert, the landscape shows some scrubby grasslands and steppes, which are fairly good for supporting animals. And so the societies in this region were more animal herding and hunting, rather than relying so much on farming. And the people there, it seems, in the Iron Age became known for horsemanship, for chariot riding, for hunting, and they're seen as very warlike. And the art that survives from ancient Assyria celebrates great kings as hunters and warriors, and they're often shown in chariots. But even that being said, some of this information that I just recited off to you, even some of that was not really known before the mid-19th century. And people in that era had only very vague impressions, indirect and uncertain impressions, and really no tangible facts about what the Assyrian Empire was, how it worked, or what was the great significance of this capital at Nineveh. So how did that change? Well, it started to change in the 19th century during the rise to power of the British Empire. And arguably, Nineveh in particular was especially interesting to this new rising imperial power that was Great Britain. They saw maybe something of themselves reflected in this very ancient militaristic empire. And hence, it may not be surprising that in April 1840, a British traveler and antiquarian named Austin Henry Laird went to Mosul in what is today northern Iraq, although the British at that point still more often called it Mesopotamia by this ancient name. Over the course of the preceding winter, Laird had been traveling around mainly the eastern Mediterranean, viewing ancient sites, such as Greek and Phoenician sites, examining the ruins. But he went to Mosul because he had been told by word of mouth that there were some ruins remaining there of this ancient capital of Nineveh. So he went over into Mesopotamia, he went to the city of Mosul, and he crossed over the Tigris River to the east of Mosul, to view these supposed ruins, but he saw only large mounds piled with packed dirt, dust, bushes, grass, and grazing animals like goats. He saw nothing that he was accustomed to from these other sites further west in the Mediterranean. No fallen pillar capitals, no broken statues, nothing to give away the fact that these large mounds 
were not simply natural hills, other than the fact that they were oddly shaped and sitting in the middle of a flat valley. So this fired Laird's imagination and curiosity, and he resolved to one day excavate and see what could be uncovered in these mounds. So over the course of the mid-1840s, Laird returned several times to Mosul and hired small teams to begin excavating in these mounds. And he made many small finds of items like ancient dishes and ivory figurines of ladies that may have been goddesses. In 1851, he had more funding and began to undertake a larger excavation around different parts of Mosul, the outlying areas of the city. And mainly to the south of the city, he made significant finds. His first big discovery was a pair of enormous monumental winged bulls with human heads, which probably once flanked the entranceway to a city or maybe to a palace temple complex. Nonetheless, he only barely scratched the surface of the largest mounds, which were, you might say, the most intimidating, which were over in that area east of the city on the other bank of the Tigris River. And in particular, the largest mound was known to local people as Kuyunjik, and that still remained untouched when Layard returned to England in order to bring to the British Museum in London these large finds like the monumental bull sculptures. So by the time he went back in 1851, Laird was by now fairly famous in England, and he had the backing to keep going with his excavations. But instead, he decided he wanted to stay in Britain and go into politics. And he recommended that for further excavations, he recommended that the British Museum appoint a man who had been, in a sense, his second in command, an Iraqi man named Hormuz Rassam, and dispatch him to oversee another expedition. So who was Hormuz Rassam? Well, he had already served previously as the paymaster for Laird's expeditions back in the 1840s. And he was multilingual, unusually highly educated. He had spent some time in England. He was at this point 25 years old. And he was able to receive this commission even though he was not British. He was local. He was from the city of Mosul. He was of Assyrian ancestry. In other words, he was not an Arab. There are these small ethnic distinctions that Europeans don't often know very much about, but he came from an ancestral group that traced its ancestry back to ancient Assyria, and that was still distinct from the larger Arab population. He was a Christian. He belonged to the so-called Chaldean Christian Church. Hormuz Drassam's brother was married to the sister of a British missionary. And his brother, named Christian Rassam, had actually been appointed as the British vice consul at Mosul. So he had an official position and connection to the British Empire. This made it possible for Rassam to learn English and to get a job as a clerk working at this vice consulate in Mosul. He was multilingual in English, Arabic, and Aramaic, which was still a spoken language among Assyrians in Iraq. And then he was taken on to serve as the paymaster for Layard's 1845 excavation south of Mosul. When Layard left for a time in the late 1840s and went back to Britain, he took Hormuz Rassam with him. 
in the hoping that he could get more education and training back in Britain. And so in 1847 to 49, he lived in England and was briefly enrolled at Oxford. And while there, he made a great impression. He was seen as impetuous and stubborn, as well as smart and charismatic. He refused the role of deferential protege to Laird, but he did like England and, when possible, wanted to remain there. But in 1849, he was taken out of Oxford and dispatched back to Mosul to act as Laird's lieutenant on another excavation. This is the one that then uncovered the monumental bulls. Then in 1851, he went with Laird back again to England and became something of a minor celebrity in the fact that he was so fluent and knowledgeable about English civilization, as well as now becoming a leading expert in ancient Assyria. And so he was both relatable, religiously acceptable because he was a Christian, but still exotic in his way. The museum hired him for an ongoing position and at Laird's suggestion sent him back to undertake an excavation in the bigger mounds around Mosul, but with the caveat that he would be under the supervision of the British consul at Baghdad, who was an antiquarian named Rawlinson. So there was at least this pretense that Rawlinson would be supervising him, but he was many miles away in a different city. And so really, Hormuz Rassam had fairly free reign to follow his instincts and his preferences in going about excavating more sites. Now, the main limitation, the hitch here, was actually that while Hormuz Rassam and Layard were back in Britain, the British consul at Baghdad and the French consul named Victor Place had struck a bargain. They had agreed to divide up the zones and sites around Mosul between their two excavating teams. So Hormuz Rassam didn't really have free reign, even if he got permission and approval from the Ottoman government. This was still technically an Ottoman province. Nonetheless, more and more, it was being pulled into the spheres of influence of Britain and France, and in a miniature form, those two powers had sort of carved the areas of ruins and mounds around Mosul into their own little spheres of influence, British and French. So over the ensuing months in the early 1850s, the British and the French teams sort of raced around to different sites, trying to get to them first to excavate, and often disputing turf, right? Coming into disagreements and clashes over who had the rightful claim to excavate a given spot that seemed to be promising. And sometimes these clashes actually erupted into physical fights and brawls. Rassam was able to press an advantage in this situation because he had a great deal of local supporters. He spoke the local languages fluently. He had friends and relatives on the ground around Mosul. And so when it came to sort of strong arming, he could press something of an advantage. But nonetheless, his preference was to somehow simply undermine or nullify this entire deal, this bargain that had been made in his absence, dividing up the sites into these two spheres. So he's really bridling against this restraint, and he strongly believes that the northern end of that largest mound called Kuyunjik surely must be the most important site, and he surmised that that was probably the center 
of what had been the ancient city back in the 6 and 700s BC. So that's really his main goal. But it seems to lie on the other side of this line, in the French zone of influence, you could say. So in 1853, after many months of this tug-of-war, Rassam made a plan to sneak in quietly at night and begin in a very small and selective way, excavating into the mound at this prime spot. And he found that the perfect time to do so would be around the winter solstice in December, when the nights were longest. They would have the most time under cover of darkness. And incidentally, there would also be a full moon around that same time to give them light to see their way without having to light lanterns. And serendipitously, it happened that there were three nights in a row of a very clear sky, allowing this bright full moon to illuminate their way in and around December 20th, 1853. So over the course of these three nights, they were able to quickly dig in, find some stone fragments, and then finally reach a point where they uncovered a large, elegant relief sculpture showing an emperor in imperial garb. And this was a new imperial figure, different from what had been seen in other sites. So whereas Layard had already uncovered another site that he believed to be the palace of an emperor called Sennacherib, who is mentioned in the Bible, this seemed to be a different emperor, and hence maybe an entire new palace. So this significant find really electrified his team, there were celebrations, but also the news spread like wildfire among the networks of Aramaic and Arabic-speaking people around Mosul, and it was only a matter of time until the news of this discovery reached the French consul himself, Victor Place. So Place rushed in, found the site where they had been digging, and immediately protested and objected. But Rassam at this point, when this conflict is coming to a head, and Rassam at this point argues that the permission to excavate Kuyunjik, this major mound, had been given already years earlier to Layard. Right? And so in that way, the Ottoman authorities had given that title, you could say, to Layard. But it had been then the British consul Rawlinson in Baghdad who had then made this bargain with the French. And Rassam argued that Rawlinson had no power to cede a right that he had never had and that didn't belong to him in the first place. And so Rassam took a firm stand that he had this permission granted to him from Layard and in turn from the Ottoman government. So Victor Place, rather than starting another brawl, backed down and allowed the excavation of Kuyunjik to continue. So Rassam and his team began excavating what they found to be a large palace complex right where Rassam had expected it to be, in the northern end of the mound called Kuyunjik. And this complex came to be called the Southwest Palace, or eventually, once more was learned about it, the Palace of Ashurbanipal. And they first found a large series of staterooms, most of them lined with long, elaborate friezes of relief sculptures. And these were very brilliant. They removed many of them to then send back to the British Museum or other sites. And one of them in particular, an especially long stateroom, 
showed an elaborate series of dramatic scenes of the emperor hunting lions. And these showed exquisite realism and detail in the bodies and the motions of both the humans and their horses and the lions. And Rassam himself was mainly interested in this art. For him, that was the main goal and trophy to be gained. He paid relatively little attention to the writing. He didn't necessarily think that was as appealing to the public, as noteworthy, and almost all of it was in a writing system that he himself didn't read. However, the British consul back in Baghdad, Rawlinson, insisted that Rassam look for inscribed tablets. So this may be the one significant instruction that Rawlinson actually did give to him, was to look for and gather tablets with texts and inscriptions. And Rassam found, according to a book that he later wrote, Rassam found on the floor of that large stateroom with the lion hunting friezes, which may have been the throne room, scattered on the floor piles of terracotta tablets, most of them inscribed in the writing system we call cuneiform, which as I said, Rassam could not read. And most of them also were stamped with seals that may have been official seals from the imperial government. And a few also were inscribed in other writing systems, such as Egyptian or Phoenician writing. So Rassam gathered many of these tablets and then shared them and showed them to both French officials and to Rawlinson, the British consul who was an antiquarian, and asked them to provide translations. And only when these different experts from both nations gave him consistent translations was he persuaded that they really were able to read this writing system and that there was something significant and revealing there. So they continued to excavate for several months until in March 1854, Rassam collected the various sculptures and tablets that they had gathered, and he left to go back to Britain because he had basically run out of funds. The grants that he had been given by the British Museum and other quasi-official sources were now run out. Then subsequently, another antiquarian named Kenneth Loftus took over the project, and he had backing from private funds. So maybe some private donors back in Britain or other European nations that didn't fully trust a local like Rassam were willing to fund Loftus. And Loftus continued to excavate for a few more months, added in a few more small finds into the trove. And then in 1856, he packed up what they had found and took the trove back to Great Britain, most of it to donate to the British Museum. And then the press gave credit for these discoveries, mainly to Loftus. Now, after this word got out, others leapt in and tried to claim credit for themselves. And there was a long dispute between Loftus, the British consul Rawlinson, and the French consul Place, all of whom tried to take credit for the discovery of the palace and library of Ashurbanipal. And all of them basically agreed, however, in erasing Rassam and denying him the role that he had actually played in uncovering the palace. There is one example of one news report that did cite Rassam as the discoverer, but in a way it still gave indirect credit to the British excavators and said that he was, quote, impregnated with English energy by these mentors like Rawlinson and Layard, and that is what then inspired him to make this discovery. 
So Rassam was naturally frustrated at not getting the full credit that he believed he deserved, but nonetheless, British and French officials in Iraq knew very well what he had done, and partly in response to that, Rassam got a diplomatic post working at another British diplomatic station in Yemen. He served there through the 1850s. Afterwards, he then was sent on a very sensitive and difficult diplomatic mission to Ethiopia, which ended poorly, although it was not mainly his fault. And after that point, he retired from diplomatic work and went back to London, where he settled permanently. He married an English woman and then in the 1870s began to be involved again in archaeology. And especially after 1876, he was sent on many important missions to excavate at Babylon and other important sites around Mesopotamia. And he attained some degree of success and renown, but still, not surprisingly, his name is rarely brought up in modern literature about these discoveries. So that is just a brief description of how this library, as we now know it, was first uncovered and came to light due to the work of Austin Henry Layard, Hormuz Rassam, Kenneth Loftus, and their excavators and laborers. Now, what did these texts actually say? What are the contents of this library? Well, as these tablets were gathered and sent back to Britain and accumulated in the Near Eastern Department of the British Museum, they eventually were counted and examined and sorted. And as far as the size and scope of this collection that was taken out of the palace of Ashurbanipal, it comprises over 30,000 tablets in total most of them made of clay, some also in other materials like wood, and most of them inscribed with cuneiform text written using reed pens scraping into the clay. Most of the tablets were broken into pieces. Only a few of them were fully intact when they were found and moved out to Britain. Just the catalog of these various tablets in the collection fills five volumes. And it happens that just before this discovery was made in 1853, a few scholars in Britain and one or two in Germany had been working on trying to decipher the cuneiform writing using a fairly small number of materials, most of them just inscriptions that had been gathered by other antiquarians in Iraq. And they were able to make progress in decoding this writing system, first by making an assumption that happened to be correct, that the underlying language that it encoded was Semitic and probably related to languages like Aramaic that were associated with the Assyrian Empire. And they were able, little by little, then, with the added help of this mass of new material from the palace of Ashurbanipal, they were able to determine that the language of most of the texts was Akkadian, a very ancient Semitic language that still happens to be quite close to Aramaic and even to Arabic which has been preserved through the centuries due to devotion and study to the Quran. So there's been a great deal of continuity. Arabic has been conserved through the Islamic tradition and Aramaic through Jewish and Christian tradition, and hence the Akkadian was not so far off from these known written languages, and they were able to, little by little, through 
analysis and comparison to reconstruct the Akkadian language and then to decipher and transcribe and translate these masses of material coming from the library of Ashurbanipal. And most of it, of course, today has still not been translated. There is so much material, and it is such a painstaking process to transcribe and interpret these texts that most of it still remains there in drawers and cabinets in the reading rooms of the British Museum yet to be studied. So when presented with this gigantic new trove of material, these Victorian scholars who had access to it in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, they had to prioritize and figure out what sort of texts they were interested in and would be worth going through this labor of transcribing and translating. And in this early period, these scholars put a tremendous priority on comparisons with biblical history and biblical texts. So this was a time when higher criticism of the Bible, historical awareness of the Bible as mythology and folklore had just come into intellectual vogue. There was broad reconsideration of the meaning of the Bible in light of new theories like the theory of evolution and so on. So readers who went through this great work of learning Akkadian and learning cuneiform were able to pick out passages to compare against references and chronicles in the Bible. They were able to reconstruct the reigns of the three emperors who had ruled from Nineveh. So Nineveh, they found, had not been the capital of the empire for a very long time, less than 100 years. And only three emperors actually ruled from that capital in the north. One of them was Sennacherib, who, as I mentioned before, was also mentioned in the Bible. He's the emperor who first moved the Assyrian capital to Nineveh and expanded it into an enormous opulent capital. One of the things he did is diverted a small river in order to feed into a moat and pleasure gardens around the capital. He was succeeded then by his son Ezarhaddon, who ruled for about 12 years, and then Ezarhaddon was succeeded by his son Ashurbanipal, who was the third and apparently last emperor at Nineveh. Ashurbanipal is the one who assembled the library from many sources all around the empire and beyond. He died around 625 BC, the date is not entirely sure, and power disputes and fractures quickly followed. It seems for some period of time a court eunuch took over and governed for a short time. But then in 621 BC, two different regions, Medes, which is in modern-day Iran, and Babylon, just further down the rivers of Mesopotamia, Medes and Babylon both rebelled and launched attacks against the capital. In 612 BC, so after a long war, Nineveh was besieged. It held out for about three months before it fell and then was destroyed and ransacked. And it seems that it fell in part because the attackers were able to break dams and dikes governing the flow of the rivers and flooded the city. The palace itself was then attacked. The library in the palace was ransacked. Many tablets were broken. So that's probably a major reason why so many of these tablets are in fragments. 
Some, it seems, were apparently salvaged at the last minute by scribes and brought over into safer spots like that throne room with the lion hunting friezes. That, it seems, is what Rassam first found when he got into that room was the sort of piles of important tablets that someone had tried to rescue from the attack on the library. But then subsequently the palace was torched, large parts of it burned and collapsed, and it seems then many tablets which were on clay or terracotta in both the library and the throne room were then fired by the heat of the fire and hence vitrified and became more durable. And that's a major reason why it seems thousands of them survived down to the 19th century to be recovered. So that's the basic outline then of Nineveh's life as a capital and how this library ended up in the particular condition in which it was found. Now what do the contents of the text tell us about how the Assyrian Empire worked? What kind of society was it? How did the imperial court work? And why was this library created in the first place? So as for the portrait of the imperial court that can be extracted from these texts, one can see that the emperors remained mainly in the palace complexes, surrounded by rich gardens and harems with many wives and concubines. This was true especially of Ashurbanipal, who it seems rarely left the palace complex. When the emperors did leave, they were surrounded by massive entourages of courtiers, guards, and animals. They habitually received gifts and tributes, as well as messages from all around their known world, stretching from Persia to Egypt and Phoenicia. The emperors formally referred to themselves as, quote, king of the world, king of Assyria. And while the empire was very militaristic and authoritarian, there also was, it seems, a great dynamism an awareness of change and progress. There were constant innovations, reforms, and reshufflings including in the administrative bureaucracy and the military command. And there also were great innovations in practical technology, especially hydraulics. I think a theme you can see running through Assyrian civilization is sort of an obsession with the control and harnessing of water, this crucial, scarce resource. So there was a lot of innovation and celebration of new inventions like new water pumps or water screws and so on. Formalistically and outwardly, the palace, it seems, projected total confidence in its monumentalism, in its richness, and in its themes, in, in, in its art. For example, there's a famous sculpture recovered from the palace called the Garden Party, which shows the emperor Ashurbanipal relaxing, eating, having musicians playing harps, and so on, while meanwhile the head of one of his enemies, who had been the king of Medes, is severed and hanging from a tree in the garden. And it sort of dramatizes this sort of easy confidence of being able to dominate and subjugate any of their surrounding peoples. But at the same time, this extreme confidence, as is often the case, was really a veneer or a show to paper over a deep anxiety. The palace had a very extensive, complicated internal and external spy network. 
since the emperors understood in their view that the gods had granted them this incredible power and good fortune to rule over the entire world, equally they were conscious that the gods could take that away at any moment. So the emperors were truly obsessed with omens, signs of bad fortune or divine disfavor. They built enormous temples and observatories for the watching of the heavens to be vigilant for omens or messages. And the Assyrians, it seems, broadly viewed the world as a kind of great text, a text or a tablet upon which divine beings wrote signs and symbols as messages to their lieutenants, which were the emperors. And there was an endless constant consultation with astrologers and soothsayers. They interpreted bird flights, smoke patterns, entrails taken from sacrificed animals. There was a tremendous fear of launching the wrong campaign or taking action at the wrong moment, which would lead to failure or disaster. And there also was perpetual fear of internal violence and treason and disloyalty within the empire or even within the imperial court itself. And even in this time of great flourishing in the Nineveh period, Still, there was frequent violence and instability reaching through the empire and into the court. Before Sennacherib came to power, his father, Sargon II, had been the emperor, and he died in battle. And his successor, Sennacherib, saw this as a sign of divine disfavor. He saw dangers relating to the fact that that Sargon II had been brought low and humiliated by defeat in battle. And so this seems to be the reason why Sennacherib then moved the capital. It was sort of trying to get away from bad luck or bad omens. He moved the capital to Nineveh and built an enormous palace there. Then in 681 BC, Sennacherib was assassinated by two of his own sons, and they were resentful because their younger brother had they had been skipped over and their younger brother had been chosen to be crown prince and successor so in resentment they killed their own father Sennacherib but it seems that power nonetheless did pass to that youngest son Esarhaddon who ruled from 681 to 669 but who felt a constant insecurity knowing about the violence and dissension that had preceded his own rise to power. And it seems he felt constant anxiety and constant incurable ailments. He was surrounded by a sort of army of physicians constantly trying to treat or heal all of his aches and pains and sicknesses. He eventually died on the way to Egypt to try to suppress a rebellion. So you could say despite all of his precautions, nonetheless, his fears came true. And the throne was then passed to his youngest son, Ashurbanipal. So once again, the elder sons were passed over, and one of them, the, the elder brother, was actually assigned as governor of Babylon to sort of take him out of the capital to this secondary city while Ashurbanipal took the throne in Nineveh. So Ashurbanipal reigned for about 40 years, and it seems that he was much more literary and intellectual than his predecessors had been. In an act that was unusual for kings at that time, he learned to read and write. 
in both Akkadian, which was this sort of high classical language of the court, and Sumerian, a really ancient classical literary language that was barely used anymore. So he was exceptionally learned, even among the scribes and diplomats at the court. And it seems possible that his decision to learn these languages was partly due to fear, fear that his scribes and messengers might not read reports to him accurately. And he wanted to be able to access that written information directly for himself. And it seems that he was very interested in language and composition. He sometimes edited texts himself in order to make them tighter or pithier. And a few of his editorial notes even survive in the sort of annals of the court. There are points where his comments on compositions were recorded and survive, including in one instance, it seems he heard a speech and then he reviewed the, the written text taken from that speech and he criticized it and said the talk was better. So he took great pride in his literacy, even in those hunting sculptures in what seems to be the throne room where he's pursuing and slaying lions. He's depicted in these sculptures with a writing stylus tucked into his belt. So in a sort of subtle way, he's celebrating his own literary capabilities. He also, like his predecessors, faced serious resistance. There was a series of small rebellions in Egypt again, and there also then was a, a serious invasion launched from Elam, that kingdom in southern Persia. And it seems that they made some sort of alliance with his disloyal brother, the governor of Babylon. But Ashurbanipal was able to crush this rebellion and invasion. He ransacked and destroyed much of Elam, and then Babylon inflicted heavy punishment and damage upon that ancient city of Babylon. But as he did so, he also sent out teams, sort of scouting teams, to find important texts, tablets, scrolls, and so forth, and gather them to then bring into his central library in his palace at Nineveh. So the Assyrian emperors, and particularly Ashurbanipal, were engaged in a two-pronged struggle to maintain their power. One, by perfecting techniques of administration, and two, by using divination and prognostication. And this two-pronged struggle led to the creation of the massive library. And the beginning nucleus, it seems, was simply the leftover administrative and governmental records from his predecessors from Sennacherib and Esarhaddon. And these include lots of appeals, reports, and requests to the emperors, especially from officials stationed around the various parts of the empire. Then Ashurbanipal added on to this many messages and interpretations coming from the temple of Nabu, the god of writing, who it seems he regarded as sort of his special patron god, and then added on to those the gathering of texts from subject cities around the empire, many of which were not simply taken and deposited, but rather were carefully copied, translated into Akkadian, and then incised in a standard Akkadian writing form in wood or clay to then be deposited in the library. So hence there were three basic kinds of texts, or three basic genres, of texts that one finds in the library of Ashurbanipal. 
Firstly, many of them are astrological and divinatory. They're asking for meanings to be assigned to frightening events like lightning strikes or earthquakes. Many of them are letters to gods, such as the sun god Shamash or the moon goddess Ishtar, asking for advice and help, particularly in war or in uncovering traitors and conspiracies within the government. And those also then are answered in many cases by replies that seem to have come from the gods through diviners or priests to back to the emperor. And there's an interesting one, for example, that is in the voice of the goddess Ishtar, where she seems to be reassuring the emperor Ashurbanipal and sort of maybe lightly scolding him for his constant fears and anxieties. And she says in this tablet, quote, What words have I spoken to you that you could not rely upon? Did I not vanquish your enemy? Did I not collect your haters and foes like butterflies? I will keep you safe in your palace. I will make you overcome anxiety and trembling. End quote. So you can hear here the, the deity or maybe the priest getting kind of exasperated with the emperor's constant fear and paranoia. And this correspondence between the emperor and the divinities, it seems, was handled by these various diviners, astrologers, soothsayers. And sometimes it was worked out in a very systematic way. It became more and more systematized, and these sort of official advisors could go through a great deal of training and study. They were eventually able to predict astronomical events like eclipses. They went through mutual examination and criticism. There was a sort of uh, peer review where they could criticize one another's prognostications and interpretations. And there are instances, it seems, where the emperor would submit one question to many different soothsayers and astrologers, or would actually separate them into four teams and submit the same question to each of the four in order to then get the results and compare them against one another and weigh and evaluate whose interpretation or whose answer was most accurate. And in this way, it can start to seem more and more like a modern-day controlled experiment. There was what you might call a kind of scientific spirit to this divination. Secondly, many of the texts are literary recording epics or poetry. And it seems that even Ashurbanipal himself sometimes wrote poetry, hymns of praise and of lamentation. He writes sometimes to the god Nabu, who seems to have been his favorite and patron, and wrote to him about his difficulties, his emotional torment, his political problems, and even reflects suicidal feelings. For example, there's one poem where he seems to say that he had been attracted to the prospect of becoming emperor because he believed it would fulfill his literary aspirations. And he says, quote, In my childhood, I longed for the assembly to sit in the tablet house. But now he finds governing taxing to the point of contemplating death. Later in the poem, he describes his present condition and says, quote, Often I go up to the roof in order to plunge down, but my life is too precious, it turns me back. I would hearten myself. But what heart do I have to give? I would make up my mind, but what mind do I have to make up? O Nabu, where is your forgiveness? O son of Bel, where is your guidance? End quote. So in addition to this poetry and these hymns, which could often be very confessional and emotional, there also are great legends and epics, which it seems Ashurbanipal wanted to collect and archive. Many of these 
longer epics are in series of many tablets, which are then carefully numbered and labeled. So a typical one might begin with a heading with the number, the title of the particular section, the series title, and then, quote, Palace of Ashurbanipal, King of the World, King of Assyria. And it seems that Ashurbanipal had a particular interest in collecting legends and stories from before the flood. So the Assyrians at this point had a myth of a great flood, which seems to be closely related to the flood myth that's also recounted in the Bible and in other Near Eastern mythologies. So it seems that he believed that there had been a great flood and that knowledge that survived that flood was somehow especially crucial and particularly related to this critical ability to channel and control water. But then thirdly, the largest number of texts from the library are administrative, recording reports and requests from various government bodies and officials. And these records reflect a really bustling empire with many complaints about everyday problems of urban life like reckless driving, disputes over noise, disputes over vendor spots on the streets, things that are still issues in places like New York City today. And as for the court itself, it appears that it was really swarming with literate men of various kinds, priests, scribes, administrators. The library has thousands of requests for better pay or for better perks like horses or official clothing. And in addition, beyond the capital, the provinces saw many small acts of resistance and protest, signs of possible plots. Some of these are just reports of petty incidents like someone expressing anger or a curse at the local governor. And any little incident like this, it seems, could be considered significant and could arouse fears about possible conspiracy. So it was really a hyper-vigilant empire and the constant communication about power or resistance was flowing in right into the emperor's own hands. And the efficacy of this mode of government is certainly questionable. It's impressive how much they were able to manage this flow of information. But at the same time, too much information can be overwhelming or paralyzing. And ultimately, it's questionable whether this was at all effective in keeping the empire together. And as I said before, it seems that power fragmented fairly quickly after the death of Ashurbanipal, resulting in rebellion and civil war, and rebels attacked the palace in 612. And it seems that Ashurbanipal and the other emperors' paranoia about plots and conspiracies against them maybe were ultimately justified because it seems that when the palace was attacked and ransacked, the attackers hacked and defaced images of the head and hands of the emperor Ashurbanipal. So it is suggestive that this they saw this, even though he'd been dead for at least a decade, they saw this as a kind of personal retribution against an emperor that they saw as a traitor or a tyrant. And it's significant also that we know from the records and reports in the library that Ashurbanipal commissioned a great epic to be written about his successful suppression of the rebellion in Elam. But no copies of that epic survive anywhere 
in the library, at least none that has ever been found, which is surprising considering that this seems to have been a sort of text that he wanted as a crowning literary achievement of his own reign, and yet it does not survive. And this suggests that among those who attacked the library were some who knew where the copies of that epic were and specifically took them out and destroyed them so that we do not see them today. So it does seem as if these fears and anxieties eventually came true and led to the end of the Assyrian Empire entirely. Now, as I said, there's this constant sort of power struggle between the capital and this subject province of Elam, which more than once rebels against Nineveh. But there's also this looming matter of Babylon, which was an older city, which had very ancient roots and ancient art dating to before the rise of Assyria. And there clearly is a kind of love-hate relationship here between the imperial capital and Babylon to the south, where there is a lot of political resentment and jealousy between the two. Babylon is a source of plots and conspiracies. But also Babylon was a great inspiration. It was an inspiration in art and literature, and many of the historical legends and chronicles that are preserved in the library are taken from Babylonian sources, and those Babylonian sources are often specifically cited and recorded reverentially. So you can see here a sort of ambivalence embedded in the body of literature regarding Babylon, and the most important and most famous text that has ever been found among the library was in fact copied from a very ancient Babylonian source, and that is the long epic that we today know as the Epic of Gilgamesh. So the discovery of this most important text from the library was made by a previously fairly obscure man named George Smith. And George Smith was a working-class craftsman from a working-class area of London, grew up in a poor household, but was apprenticed as a teenager to a company of engravers in Fleet Street. So this was a potentially promising, skilled line of work. He clearly showed talent and diligence. And while working for these engravers in Fleet Street, it seemed as if George Smith would go on to a successful career in that business. But he took all of his possible time off, including lunch breaks, to go to the British Museum and examine and study these broken, fragmented tablets from the library of Ashurbanipal. And through intense independent study, without a formal teacher, he learned cuneiform and learned Akkadian, and furthermore expanded the knowledge of the language by analyzing the vocabulary and the structure of the language, and he became really the museum's sort of lay expert in Akkadian and cuneiform, until eventually he was formally hired by the museum, despite his low status and his lack of formal education. He was hired to piece together the fragments of the tablets. So they didn't exactly formally recognize his ability to translate and interpret the tablets, but they did see his usefulness in piecing them together and making order out of the chaos of the library. 
1871, he collected various texts that he had translated that he believed were significant to the history of the imperial court, and he published a book called Annals of Ashurbanipal. So this gave him some basic degree of notoriety. In 1872, he had more time and more funds to be able to keep examining these texts. And like other more highly trained scholars, George Smith also was interested in the light that these records might shed on the Bible and on the historicity of the events and the prophecies recorded in the Bible. So it was in that mindset that, that in 1872, Smith found a passage on a tablet in the British Museum's collection, which was partially encrusted over with calcium deposits. But the part of the tablet that was still exposed and readable seemed to make reference to a flood and a man on a boat. So this was intriguing to him, and of, naturally he wondered if it might somehow relate to the story of the Great Flood in the book of Genesis. So he called in another sort of informal, untrained craftsman named Robert Reedy, who had previously been a tobacconist, but who had, been, who had developed a secret method for chemically removing these calcium deposits that encrusted over many of the tablets. And so Robert Reedy eventually was able to uncover the rest of this tablet, which was not entirely complete, but was mostly intact. And George Smith found that the uncovered text made further mention of the boat coming to rest on top of a mountain and of a bird being sent out to look for land. So these were clear, strong resonances of the story of Noah's Ark in the book of Genesis. And once Smith was able to read this passage, he was in this, you know, quiet, formal Victorian reading room. He reportedly leapt up and shouted and began running around the room and disrobing, <laughs> at least according to one later account. Though, you know, by Victorian standards, that might not mean very much. But this was such a significant find in Smith's eyes and others around him, beyond even the world of Assyriology out there in the public and the press, that it led to a drive to gather funding to then send George Smith to go and excavate more in the mounds around Mosul and see what more could be found. And in particular, the Daily Telegraph pledged a great deal of funds. So he and his friends tried to get funding directly from the British government. And the prime minister at that time, Gladstone, it seems was, he was very intellectual and very well read, and it seemed as if he might be sympathetic and supportive. But in fact, Gladstone was very egotistical. And there are many stories and anecdotes about that. And he was very interested in Homer, which was sort of his preferred subject of study. And he ended up kind of uh, backing out and not showing any official support to this mission. But the newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, recognized the great public interest that this could generate, the idea that there was an alternative version of this core biblical story to be found from this mysterious library. So they sent Smith and a team in 1873 over to Iraq, with the hope of finding more tablets, and in particular in the hope of finding a missing fragment that had broken off of the lower left part of the tablet in the museum's collection. 
So naturally, this was an extreme case of looking for a needle in a haystack, hoping that this one sort of triangular piece could be found to complete this alternate Assyrian version, as they understood it, Assyrian version of the Genesis flood myth. So Smith went to Mosul and he had in his hand a firman or official decree from the Ottoman government authorizing him to carry out further excavations. But nonetheless, as often happened, local Ottoman officials blocked him. They refused to recognize the firman. He had to travel to Baghdad and get more su support and straighten the matter out before he then went back to Mosul and started excavating. And after just a few weeks... In May 1873, Smith found a fragment of a tablet supplying the missing part of that exact legend. So it's one of these unbelievable, at least it seemed at the moment, to be one of these unbelievable strokes of good fortune that this one needle in a haystack he wanted turned up within a matter of weeks. And he, of course, was enormously excited. This gave greater clarity and completeness to what they called the Chaldean version of the flood myth. And the discovery also was quickly announced and spread around the world by telegraph cable. There were now cables running all around the Ottoman Empire, Europe, India, and there was a kind of public sensation around it. And even the New York Times reported about it, and they noted the remarkable convergence, the almost ironic convergence, where this incredibly ancient form of text, this cuneiform tablet, had now been found and could be publicized and shared with the world by means of the newest, most modern technologies of communication, the telegraph and the newspaper. And in this way, you could almost see the circle of history coming around full circle. Now, in Britain, people were highly excited and impressed about this discovery. And one can see in the talk about this discovery of this new flood myth certain imperial overtones the feeling that this ancient and exotic world had now been effectively colonized or conquered by the new empire of Britain. So even though Iraq was still technically under Ottoman rule all through this time, nonetheless, the Daily Telegraph reported about the discovery and said, quote, the deciphering of Assyrian cuneiform is marching at a pace that must astonish its most ardent admirers and surpass the expectations of its most devoted followers. Ashurbanipal had been cross-examined, and now Bel and the dragon have been brought into court. The mythology, or rather the religion, of the Semitic polytheists has been conquered. So you can see here Britain, in a sense, co-opting antiquarianism and co-opting this ancient knowledge into a sort of new imperial quest and casting this mission as a sort of intellectual or spiritual conquest of the East, which could, by implication, then pave the way for actual literal military conquest. And this new imperial interest is reflected even in Smith's own reports. As he was sending cables back to Britain about his search for the Gilgamesh passage, he also reported finding, quote, a curious tablet copied from a Babylonian original, giving warnings to kings and judges of the evils which would follow the neglect of justice in the country, end quote. And I think you can see in this sort of report a carefully studied ambiguity. Why is it curious? Why is this tablet curious? It seems fairly normal, even typical of ancient literature. 
Is it curious because there's this sort of note or warning, this ominous element to it of the fragility of power? Maybe did George Smith, as a representative of the British Museum, and in a symbolic way a representative of Britain, feel a sort of identification with Babylon, with this old imperial power that was thousands of years ago so powerful, but that had already fallen and been subjugated by the time of Ashurbanipal, let alone by modern day. And I think there's a bit of an undertone of irony here also, that it was ultimately the Babylonians that helped to overthrow Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. So there's this sort of note of revenge and of empires being brought low. So there are all these reasons why these discoveries were interesting and exciting to a global audience and especially to a British audience. But then, very shortly after that missing fragment of the Gilgamesh story had been found, the Daily Telegraph suddenly pulled the plug and ended their funding, and Smith had to go home. So there's a sort of double-edged sword, where once, once the great objective of the mission had been achieved, the funders saw it as having exhausted its utility. So Smith had to go home, and at the same time there was warfare starting to break out more and more among the Arab and Assyrian tribes around northern Iraq as the Ottoman government bit by bit lost its grip, was running out of money, was losing control of its local territories. He had to leave fairly quickly through somewhat dangerous territory, and on the way Turkish officials actually seized his collection of tablets, ignoring the firman from Constantinople. So the integrity of the empire is breaking down, and later the British ambassador in Constantinople himself had to intervene to get those tablets released and sent back to London. Nonetheless, not long after, Smith went again in the winter of 1873 to 74, excavated somewhat more, but this time the local pasha, or regional governor, seized and impounded 250 of the tablets. And Smith could have played ball and basically paid fees or bribes to get the tablets back, but he had a very British Victorian mentality that that was improper. He refused to pay anything. And a lot of this increasing corruption in the Ottoman domains was due to financial dysfunction. This pasha had not gotten his salary, and so he had to find other ways of extorting payments from people around him. And you can see here in this clash, a sort of clash between new and declining empires. But also in addition to that, a rivalry had come into play, where the pasha at this point was being advised by Hormuzd Rassam that earlier antiquarian excavator from Mosul who had discovered the library in the first place. And Rassam was understandably bitter that the Daily Telegraph had not chosen him to excavate for that missing fragment in the palace. And he was resentful that Smith, not only that, but Smith was excavating in trenches that he had already previously dug in the mound of Kuyunjik. So he felt that Smith was standing on his shoulders without giving him any credit. And Rassam, in his view, it was only fair that the country of origin, which was Iraq, should be able to keep half of the important materials that were excavated. And that meant about 250 tablets. 
So there were clashing points of view here on all sides. The tragedy ultimately is just that the Ottoman government, which was increasingly dysfunctional and decrepit, did not keep track of that stash of tablets that they took, and they were later lost. So we know that there are at least some hundreds of items recovered from the library of Ashurbanipal, which are lost and unaccounted for. Now, after this whole ordeal of going back and forth to Iraq, George Smith was able to fit this tablet with a passage about the Great Flood into a larger epic sequence of 12 tablets in total. And he transcribed and translated them and had them published in a book which was called The Chaldean Account of the Deluge. So that was initially how it was referred to, Chaldean being a sort of general term for the ancient Near East, and the deluge being viewed at that time as the most significant part of the epic because of how it spoke to the Bible. We today know of this epic's narrative as the Epic of Gilgamesh, after its main character. Now, after having published this uh, short book, Chaldean Account of the Deluge, Smith then further translated and published four volumes of collected literary and mythological works from the library, which was titled The Chaldean Account of Genesis. So here he tries to match up different stories with biblical incidents like the fall of man and the Tower of Babel. Finally, in 1875, George Smith went to Iraq again for a third expedition, but it was really too hot to be able to excavate. The conditions were just impossible, and so he was forced to turn back and head back through Syria to go back to Britain. But on the way, while in a village in Syria, he contracted dysentery and died. Nonetheless, Smith is remembered as the primary discoverer of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So what is the significance of this epic? I won't get deeply into it because it's a whole complicated, rich story unto itself. Maybe I can save that for some other time as a myth of the month. But in short, the Epic of Gilgamesh, it seems, was already quite ancient, more than a thousand years old, by the time Ashurbanipal collected it into his library. And it seems that the story's roots ultimately go back to ancient Sumeria, which is where most of the story takes place. And then the composition of the verse epic that is found in the library of Ashurbanipal, it seems that it was composed in Babylonia in about the 1700s BC. So maybe a little more than 1,000 years before the time of Nineveh. Now, in the ensuing years, since the 1800s, also other fragments and copies of the epic have been found, some within the library and some in other places around the ancient Middle East, but nonetheless, the first one to come to light in the modern world was the one found in the library of Ashurbanipal and reassembled by George Smith. The name of Gilgamesh, of this heroic king who goes through trials and evolutions in this epic, that is the earliest known named individual in all of world history. And the basic scenario of his story is that it centers on this man who, at the beginning of the story, is the king of Uruk, an ancient city in Sumeria, in the southern Mesopotamia. And Gilgamesh is said to be oppressive and violent, he exploits his subjects, particularly women. 
And then in order to improve his character, the gods send to him a friend, a sort of wild man who grows up among the animals named Enkidu. And the two meet and become friends, and their friendship and mutual love, you could say, tames both of them in their different ways. So it tames Gilgamesh from his brutal and violent and tyrannical impulses. He becomes a better and more just king. And it tames Enkidu from the crudeness of life in the wild outside of civilization. So these two men sort of come together and improve one another. They then go on various adventures, including defeating a dangerous giant who lives in a cave. Enkidu then dies. Gilgamesh is in terrible grief, and he cannot accept this loss. So he decides to seek for a cure of death, a, a source of immortality. And he goes on a journey to meet a man called Utnapishtim, who reportedly is immortal. And he travels into this distant, swampy, wet land and meets with Utnapishtim, who tells him that he became immortal many years ago because he survived a great flood and built uh, a boat, you know, reminiscent of Noah's Ark, built a boat to survive the flood and reach dry land. So Gilgamesh, on the instructions of Utnapishtim, goes into a river, dives down into the depths in order to retrieve a weed that grows underwater that reportedly gives immortality. And he is able to find the weed and obtains it, but he then loses it again before he gets back to the surface. And in some versions, it seems, that have been found, in some versions, the story simply ends here this sort of momentary fleeting attainment of the perfect medicine of immortality, but then losing it. But this version from Nineveh, from Ashurbanipal's library, also has a final section, which is on the 12th tablet of the series. And in this final section, Gilgamesh then meets with the phantom of Enkidu, who has been sort of drawn up in phantom form from the underworld. And Enkidu warns Gilgamesh that the burial of the dead is an absolute necessity because if a dead person is not properly buried, their spirit will continue to haunt the world of the living and particularly to haunt their home and their, you could say, their haunts, <laughs> the places where they spent their time in life. And it's uncertain exactly where this section came from, how old it is, who added it on when or who took it off. But it seems to supply, it seems to relate in some way to the Emperor Sennacherib's decision to move the capital of the empire. Because remember, Sennacherib's father, Sargon II, was killed in battle. And not only that, but his body was lost to the enemy and the Assyrians could not recover it. And so it suggests that there was some sort of Assyrian belief that if a person was not properly buried, they would bring some sort of bad spiritual presence to their old home. And hence, maybe for this reason, Sennacherib felt that he couldn't remain in his father's palace. And so he went up and made Nineveh the new capital. So obviously, the Epic of Gilgamesh discusses themes of the Great Flood, but also many other important themes that seem to have been meaningful to the people of Sumeria, Babylonia, and Assyria, such as justice and good rulership, maturation and improvement of character, self-control, especially through friendship, the struggle over civilization and nature, 
the, the act of taming and civilizing both humans and animals, right? And this continuing obsession with animals. Enkidu himself is sort of the animalistic man. Also the themes of grief and of the quest for immortality. And you see in the epic also this idea of healing and life-giving waters, which then again comes up again and again in different mythologies around Eurasia and in the Alexander romance, which I mentioned in my discussion of the Holy Grail, and on then into more recent legends of, say, the Fountain of Youth, which I brought up in my discussion of Florida. So there are all kinds of important themes and ideas that you can pull from the Epic of Gilgamesh and the suggestions and the clues that it contains about what people thought in the ancient world, in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. But nonetheless, if we step back and look at the discovery of the library as a whole, in sum, the discovery of the library of Ashurbanipal, I would say, is the greatest success, the greatest triumph of antiquarianism. So I talked about this in my first post about Sutton Hoo, the first doorways in time. What we think of today as archaeology didn't really come about until decades later, until really after 1900. The idea of systematically excavating a site in order to understand the different layers and periods of time and the care of recording the context of each find, none of that had really been developed yet. Rather, this was an era of antiquarianism, a time when people were had moved beyond simple grave robbing and trying to find things of monetary value, but had sort of moved into a slightly more sophisticated effort to find objects and also texts with historical and artistic importance, and which could be studied and displayed for the world. And this sort of mode of antiquarianism had certain advantages. One could find a very large amount of important finds and collect them quickly, so it was efficient in that way, and it was able to share with the public and with scholarly communities large amounts of new knowledge. But there are also disadvantages, the loss of the specific context and also the significant damage, loss, and destruction that could happen in a sort of rushed or careless process where one is simply trying to gather more valuable things more quickly. And another disadvantage is the removal from the local place and origin where the items were produced or where they were deposited. You know, the fact that many of these antiquarians were coming out of Europe they had the advantages of money, knowledge, technology. And in a way, it, you can see it as still a kind of tomb raiding, of sort of taking valuable things and moving them back to a few centers like the British Museum. And this kind of antiquarianism really went hand in hand with a new modern imperialism, right? It's sort of giving legitimacy to empires through displaying their power, their wealth, their ability to collect from around the world. And in this way, there's really an imperial overtone to these institutions like the British Museum, and also to some degree the Smithsonian in the United States, which was, you know, kind of almost like the equivalent. And whereas the, the Ottomans, who were still functioning on this kind of older, early modern model, the Ottomans and the other local people in Iraq were not very interested 
in these ancient objects because they saw them as pagan, as religiously suspect or corrupt because they were pre-Islamic. The Europeans, on the other hand, were not Muslim. They were coming from far away, and they saw the, this ancient pre-Islamic antiquity in a very different light. They didn't see it as dangerous or suspect because it was pagan, but rather they saw these ancient civilizations as a legacy that they could possibly claim and take up for as a mantle for themselves. And recovering ruins and artifacts offered a new kind of source of legitimacy. And as I said, they could cast this as a kind of intellectual and spiritual conquest that could pave the way for real conquest. And in this way, it, was, it played into the increasing great game, the inter-imperial contest, especially between Britain, France, and Russia for control of the Middle East. Okay, so is that the end of the story? Not quite. There's more. The contents of the library that have been sitting in the British Museum have been slowly translated and gradually made available to the public from the 1870s to today. The first parts of it were published in volumes in the 1870s to 1890s, which happens remarkably to be right at a time when Britain was starting to feel its first imperial anxieties, the first fears of new competition from Germany and the United States, anxieties about decline. And so in a way you can see the whole project is sort of serendipitous or almost faded like this, the final uncovering of the library's contents sort of goes hand in hand with Britain's increasing struggle and loss of imperial primacy. In recent years, modern scholars have tried to use new methods and technologies to analyze and organize the tablets, but a great deal still can never be known because of the scrambling. So there are facts like, was there an overall organizing scheme of the library? How were the materials placed and archived? We probably can never know that because of the way they were mixed together and jostled about. And now also with decolonization and with the sort of anti-colonial movement from World War II to today, new tensions and questions have arisen. So it's now become a frequent question for the British Museum and others like it, should the materials there be returned? And particularly when it comes to this library, does the nation of Iraq have some claim on these materials? Which is a complicated question when you consider, for one thing, Iraq didn't exist as a nation state when they were excavated, and there has been a great deal of change and upheaval. You know, the, most of the people of Iraq today are not Assyrian, and they, they are mostly Arab and Muslim, so there's been civilizational shift. But nonetheless, does Iraq have a claim on them? And this question really came to the fore at the time when Iraq was ruled by Saddam Hussein from the 1980s to the early 2000s. So Saddam Hussein was a secular Arab nationalist. Much like modern Europeans, Saddam Hussein did not view pre-Islamic antiquity as simply benighted heathenism, but rather he saw it as a source of possible pride and inspiration for the modern Middle East and for modern Arabs. And Saddam Hussein, in his propaganda, he often likened himself to ancient leaders like Gilgamesh, Hammurabi, and Sargon. He also was a novelist. He wrote several novels, the last of which was a historical fiction novel 
taking place in ancient Mesopotamia, which was loosely based on the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's clear that Hussein saw himself as a kind of modern, a new coming of, of Gilgamesh. And in the year 2001, Saddam Hussein pursued his last big kind of monumental project. So he'd already laid some groundwork to sort of reconstruct a replica of Babylon. And then in 2001, he embarked on a project to create a new library of Ashurbanipal on the campus of the University of Mosul. And this new library would include in its collection cast replicas of the tablets held in the British Museum, as well as a modern book collection focusing mainly on the different eras of the history of Iraq, right, going back to ancient Mesopotamia. And this library was built to have five floors, including storage and reading rooms, conference and seminar rooms, and museum displays. Construction did begin in 2001, but it was slow and it was then halted by the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. The work of construction and reconstruction then resumed in 2004 under U.S. occupation, supported in particular by SUNY Stony Brook, which donated thousands of books. But this project was a very low priority, right? After the devastation of the war, the University of Mosul had to rebuild its main library, its hospital, its medical school, and its academic press, all of which had been burned down or severely damaged by rockets and looted in the war. So several years later in the 2010s, other Arab institutions around the Middle East rallied to support this project again as a kind of recovery of history for modern Arab pride. So institutions like the Biblioteca Alexandrina in Egypt offered to make donations. But these plans froze again when ISIS took control of Mosul for three years, over three years, from June 2014 to July 2017. Okay, so what has become of this project now after ISIS has been expelled from Mosul? Well, as far as I can tell, it's simply suspended in uncertainty. Will the project continue? What exactly would be the constituency of the project? Whom is it supposed to appeal to and where will it get support from? I cannot find any current information about this, except the, the only indication I have that anyone is working on furthering this project of the new library of Ashurbanipal is just an audio report and interview from last fall, 2021, which was broadcast on an Australian radio program in Aramaic. So there, apparently there is an Assyrian community in Australia, and they have a so-called Assyrian-Australian Association, which then sponsors a periodic news program on Australian radio in the Assyrian Aramaic language. And this report, I cannot understand it, but the copy text implies that this association in Australia is trying to make some sort of support for this project of rebuilding the library of Ashurbanipal. If anyone happens to know Aramaic, I can send them the link and they can see what it says. But that is all I know. As far as I can say, it is simply hanging in uncertainty. So that is the massive thousands of years long journey, millennia long journey of the library of Ashurbanipal. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.